think I'm ready. All right. All right. You need a highlighter now? No, no. We're going we gonna to make a hat. Okay. Hello. Hey, there. Hey. Anytime. <laughs> just, you know, just, just recording the podcast. Uh, you know, just start talking. <laughs> What's happening? I'm writer, researcher, and professor Dr. Regina Bradley. I'm music journalist Christina Lee. From WABE and PRX, this is Bottom of the Map, taking hip-hop conversation in a new direction. has such an interesting connection to record labels when we think about like what it means to make it yeah and how like in the 90s and 80s when hip-hop was getting put on to make it meant that you got signed and that's what we're talking about today what is the distinctions between the history of, of record labels and like collectives in the south how does that mean success and how has that evolved into this like new era digital south sure yeah of course why why do you think it's so easy to romanticize like oh i'm gonna stay independent and i'm gonna do my thing but like we don't think about those additional realities and costs behind it yeah um i think the notion of being independent is still romanticized because master p paints a very romantic image of what that could potentially look like it's mm. like if you are a black owned independent business it's like all the profits come directly back to you mm -hmm. um and i think it then becomes a point of braggadocio to kind of speak to like their own business savvy, to kind of speak to their like their smarts and things like that. And that's really great and that's fine. Like when I think of, you know, somebody who really champions that image, I think of like a young dolph in particular, hmm. who's always shot now low no limit. But um I think the I think the reality of the situation is is that um when folks when people say that like on this age of the internet, you could just drop some shit and you might not even need a label, mm -hmm. I think that's not entirely true because because music is so increasingly crowded mm. um like it necessitates something like a 360 deal which is like depending on depending on who you are it could either be a good thing or a bad thing okay. so like with 360 deals it's like the label says like okay we have our hands on a couple different pots that you got going on it's mm -hmm. not just about the music it's about all the money that you're making from touring uh, and for merch and other aspects that labels aren't otherwise like privy to. And you could look at that as a good thing because it's like, okay, well, great, I have a budget for that sort of thing. But there's also the expectation that you have to make that money back and give it back to the label. And, right. for, and for folks that are trying to make themselves stand out from all the other folks that they could be streaming on Spotify, it's actually a pretty tough choice. It's like, you take that money and maybe you'll build up your profile from like the get go. Mm -hmm. But who knows what that means like later on down the run when mm. you realize when you get handed this invoice that's like, hey, so by the way, you owe us all this money. When you were talking about like the overcrowded marketplace and this idea of streaming and social services, I'm thinking now about where the record label stands today. I guess I just want to know, like, you know, one, does it matter what kind of, does it matter if an artist is on a label now, like mm -hmm. these days? And two, um, does it matter which label sure. artists are on these days? Sure. I think, I think Dreamville is a really great example, which is that, like, the collective sort of precedes, like, the actual business aspect of it. So, like, 
when you have artists that are assigned to a Dreamville, like that makes as much of an artistic statement as it does a business one. Mm. Because when you talk about like a Earth Gang or like a JID, I know firsthand in Atlanta, like they had been doing their own independent grind for so long. Like everybody basically knew of them already before this Revenge of the Dreamers compilation, before Earth Gang released uh, Mirrorland, and before JID came out with DiCaprio, whatever inst number installation, I don't remember. But I mean, the point being is like they were already sort of making ways in Atlanta. But like once they signed to Dreamville, mm -hmm. all of a sudden um, they sort of became emblematic of whatever ethos that J. Cole sort of epitomizes. And when you think about a J. Cole, you think about somebody who might have had that mainstream push uh, by way of Jay-Z, but ultimately kind of sought out his own path. Signees like that become like associated with that image and that ultimately like benefits them because you know they have other folks looking so who is this guy that jay colt signed that's usually what the question ends up being like when i'm profiling a jid you know after he is signed to dreamville there are certain things you keep in mind which is basically um somebody who might be press shy but still has like a really like cult fan base. You also think about how J. Cole, how seriously J. Cole kind of takes the art. Mm -hmm. um, and you you associate that with the JID and with the Earth Gang. Yeah. Right. Whereas with quality control, um, even though I think like the reputation of Migos sort of preceded the reputation of quality control per se, since Migos was like the flagship act. Mm -hmm. Once you came, came to know quality control, like as I'm writing about them, like for a billboard or for a spin or something, it's mm -hmm. like you're learning about all the street credibility that these two label heads have. Mm -hmm. You know, you have uh, P who had a label named Dirty Dollar Entertainment, but really was sort of like embedded in like the streets and was hanging out with like a little baby all the time. Like, you know, he's signing folks that he has been friends with out here in the West End. Whereas with the Coach K, it's like you, you're saying like, oh, he previously managed Jeezy. He previously managed Gucci. He mm. has been embedded in this trap landscape for so long, and that adds credibility to Amigos. Amigo! Let's take the people on a journey. Okay. <laughs> and and put this theory to the test, right? Like yeah. if the South is not a monolith, then neither should the record labels where the people who are coming out the South sign. I am specifically thinking about like, you know, Jay Prince with Rap a lot and of course like Master P with No Limit. So give me the the Wikipedia spiel. Why is who is Rap a lot? Why should I care who the people <laughs> is? <laughs> I mean, the thing is is that previously 
like you didn't really have like a rap label established in Texas. Like there were definitely folks who were interested in the whole genre. I know like with Willie D and the Ghetto Boys, like, you know, he was killing it with these freestyle battles and everything like that. But rap a lot became the first label to really sort of champion this hometown scene. Mm -hmm. The main venue at the time was called the Rhinestone Wrangler. And like when you're playing a record at the Rhinestone Wrangler that was created by like a Houston label, mm -hmm. like there, it inspired like so much civic pride. And so that's where I feel like with Jay Prince, he deserves so much credit for that because it's like folks were finally able to say like, okay, the hip hop scene that we have here has like officially arrived. Mm. Um, so I feel like that's really significant. And on a similar token, I could feel like Master P is, has had like a similar impact but then also he really kind of helped establish like this prevailing archetype that exists today. I'm thinking Ooh, archetypes. Ooh. But I'm thinking about the beginning of Ice Cream Man in particular. Okay. You know, do you remember how that intro goes? Yes. I mean, you can run your company. But ain't nobody running me. But y'all cuz no limits. Black on independent. Yeah, we running this shit. So I can talk about what the fuck I yeah, want to talk about. Be hating we heard like me. The niggas want to jump into this rap game because they think this shit a game. Like, they think a rap, it ain't about rap. It's about how you organize your shit. He talks about being black owned and independent. Mm -hmm. And the fact that your rap sheet shouldn't impede you from attaining that success. When we're talking about Southern hip hop labels, I feel like folks are always aspiring to be the Master P type. Master P was the blueprint. Master P was the blueprint. The idea of having an independent label, and this is something that he has instilled, it's almost like an heirloom for him. Because like he has instilled that idea of, you know, owning your own shit. And so mm -hmm. like, you know, Romeo, Romeo Miller and all of his, you know, his kids and stuff like that. They set the map for kind of articulating how to balance, you know, that marketing and also making sure that you kind of secure the talent and being able to like work through how do you how do you find that balance? Like I don't sure. know what it is about like No Limit. No Limit just found that balance. Like their marketing is legendary. Tell me more about their marketing. Because like you will walk into these things called record stores and you walk up in there and it was like you would see like you know the new artists and you had like the R&B folks and they was looking sexy you know what i'm saying and then you would see this like bright ass neon orange green yellow blue and you just knew it was no limit like Man. he like before we knew what bling bling was mm -hmm. there was no limit mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. and it was like the music might not have been that hot mhm mm but you damn sure gonna buy it because you're just like, this shit looks amazing. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> this shit looks amazing. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then also to the point where he was like, you know, if I'm gonna do music, fuck it, I'm gonna try movies. Yeah, right. Like, right. I got the hookup. He was really empire building. I love that song, by the way. I love the title song, I Got the Hookup. <laughs> but I was just like kind of watching the movie like, uh, ooh, okay. Talking about like, you know, no limit in this, but that also makes room for cash money. Oh, of course. Cash money. For the folks who are born in 2000 and later, <laughs> who are listening to the podcast, break it down for us. Who is who is cash money? Oh, Lord. How do we even break down cash money? For those who are familiar with Lil Wayne, 
Drake, Nicki Minaj, the empire that is Young Money. You have to understand the parent empire that birthed it, literally, which is Cash Money. And so Cash Money is founded by uh, Birdman and Robert Slim Williams. They are the reason why Lil Wayne is on the map. You know, they have the groups called the Hot Boys who introduced us to Juvenile and Back That Ass Up. Girl, you look good, won't you back that ass up? Use a fine motherfucker, won't you back that ass up? Call me Big Daddy when you back that ass up. Oh, who is you playing with? Back that ass up. Girl, you look good, won't you back that ass up? Use a fine motherfucker, won't you back that ass up? Call me Big Daddy when you back that ass up. Oh, who is you playing with? Back that ass up. After you back it up, then stop. Then what? 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 Drop, drop, and like it's hot. Basically, from there, it's like. The significance is that they put the New Orleans scene on the map because before it was complete, I would say it's like almost insular in a way. Hmm. All that we come to know about New Orleans, like bounce culture and things like that, were pretty much like insulated like within like the city confines like of okay. New Orleans, right? But then all of a sudden it's like once um, Cash Money kind of puts New Orleans on like the hip hop map, that is how the mainstream, i.e. folks like me who don't really understand like the significance of the label yet gets introduced to like the twerking, the bounce and all that other good stuff. To me, like that label was responsible for really introducing like New Orleans, like hip hop culture and every, all its predecessors to the mainstream. Master P and No Limit artists, their music seemed darker. And what I mean by darker is that like instrumentally and sonically, mm-hmm. it was much more heavy. It had a lot of synthesizers to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, memorial music. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of folks that they had that had passed, they were always calling out names. It was like this really gritty kind of like memorial this gritty funeral service for the folks who weren't respectable enough so to speak yeah for sure to get um notice recognition Uh in other in other spaces like i just remember so many folks wearing like the rest in peace shirts and so i'm like it was a lot of no limit artists were speaking to a lot of the social cultural implications about what was going on being from working class new orleans you know Mm -hmm. what i'm saying like it's not always about that wonderful crusty ass bread it's not always about (laughs) king cake i mean like you know there's a reason that new orleans once upon a time was the murder capital of the world for sure being the murder capital influenced no limit right uh-huh. and then also like the the iconography of the no limit soldier uh-huh yeah like, it's hard course. out here right so i mean like that that insisted and consistent hardness that was associated with the acts mm-hmm. of no limit was really personified in that kind of imagery mm-hmm. that was even with like like mia x you know what i'm saying for sure i mean like you know she held her own like don't get it twisted but it also was like you know i'm using this space to define myself but also let you know like you know it's no soft shit going on in here like mm-hmm. you know you either you know put up a shut up mm-hmm. type shit right and then you were talking about with cash money a lot of it has to deal with manny fresh yeah Manny Fresh was a producer. He had been around at that point for maybe 10, 15 years before, you know, regionally we're introduced to him with with 400 Degrees. At least for me, that was my first introduction to Manny Fresh was, you know, Juvenile Record. All right, stop it, cause I done had enough. When it comes to my pockets, I'm ready to buzz. Baby, let me get the keys to the rover truck. Man, let me get this deep shit over, bruh. Ain't no with this year, I'm from the lawyer, bruh. What should be, hey, this book was told to us. How I'ma be running with these killers and banging down. How I'ma look in front of my people like a clown. 
his ear was to the street. What was he listening to in the street? Like you said, bounce music. How does that influence how I produce? How does that influence how I see the world? And mm-hmm. that came in. And not saying that like Cash Money didn't have no hard gritty lyrics and shit like that. Oh no. But it was like the sound of it. Not necessarily party music, but party music. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. I mean, it. Um, and Juvenile was directly plucked from that scene also because years before we heard like back that out stuff he was a kid that was like performing longer live versions of that to like these crowds so like he they're really introducing us to like i guess like the sounds of their community essentially yeah and then also going back to like all new orleans don't sound the same Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. in the way that, you know, some, somewhere like uh, in Atlanta got zones, New Orleans got wards. You yeah. know, and so does Houston. Houston got wards, too. So it's like, I think that that um, idea of homogeneity that's usually associated with cities gets thrown out the window with these two record labels that are oh, coming yeah. out and the artists that are associated with those labels. But I think what pushes cash money over for a lot of folks is that they introduce an entirely new era of hip hop with like the bling bling era. You know oh, what I'm right. saying? So mm-hmm. it's like that hyper materialism. I mean like not saying that there was materialism in hip hop beforehand, but I mean like, you know, it's cash money, like bling bling. Like it's like, let me make sure that you don't know for real. We're about that that cash life. They're kinda like sprinkling diamonds on that no limit archetype, you know what I mean? I mean, there's a reason that bling bling made the dictionary. Right. You know what I mean? Where do you think that shit came from? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. So it's like in ways that, you know, a no limit introduced the possibility of a hardcore independent label and what that you know how that can branch off cash money um represents this kind of like hustle of materialism like they bring the hustle the southern hustle to the main stage Mm -hmm. and like folks who got once they got put on especially like a wayne oh yeah Uh ain't really left i just think it's, it's really interesting that the dichotomy that's there that's presented between the two labels is equally as important and thinking about and they're not usually in competition with each other it's just like you know everything doesn't have to sound the same if you're coming from we're gonna reflect a different space. aspect of the same city you yeah know? Mm-hmm. yeah if i'm gonna show you if i if i can show you the party and the hustle mm-hmm. i can also show you the grief and you know the grind mm-hmm. and, and both no limit and cash money did that if we're thinking about like No Limit and Cash Money, what do you think it is that made these Southern labels kind of get on the radar, so to speak, of a larger hip hop industry? A huge reason why these Southern archetypes really came to life is because of a woman by the name of Wendy Day. Mm-hmm. So like when we talk about Master P and No Limit striking a distribution deal with Priority, or you're talking about like cash money and it's landmark deal with Universal to mm-hmm. where like both of these labels get to keep their masters and they get to keep a shit ton of their profits. Mm-hmm. Like leaving these labels with something like 20, 25% to split between themselves. It's really because Wendy Day was like, listen, um, these independent labels really got to like carve out a space for themselves. Like basically like she was lobbying for the sake of the independent label. And so it's through deals like these. And keep in mind, like these labels are looking at a masterpiece, a Birdman, a Slim, mm-hmm. as if they're like completely insane. It's mm-hmm. like, who are you people? Like we right. don't even know right. you like in this industry or whatever. Like you say you're selling shit out the trunk and you're asking for what exactly? But once these deals were signed, you notice that Ice Cream Man goes platinum. Mm. And all of a sudden, these labels are really reckoning 
with the sheer marketability, <laughs> marketability that these labels have to offer. I feel like that kind of helps to explain how like Southern rap labels have the credibility. They still have the credibility that speaks for itself today. Hey, yo, yo, this your boy Pastor Troy checking in. Ain't listening to the bottom of the map, but we on the come up, baby. And it's on. We started with Rap A Lot in Houston, but they weren't the only one coming out of Houston. So we got to talk about Suave House, which is a fascinating case study for me. How so? Because with Suave House, you have so many Memphis artists. Mm-hmm. So like Tila and A-Ball and MJG were signed at one point to Suave House. You yeah, know what I'm right. Saying? And I'm like, that is fascinating <laughs> how a Houston label mm-hmm. signs a Memphis group. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Again, that country cousin shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, we're not the same, but we're going to bring these things. I'm just, sure. you know, what, what, what you got for me on Suave House? I think the main thing, this isn't just limited to Suave House, but I think the significance of these early Southern hip hop labels is that their hip hop scenes are sort of having to assert for themselves. So like what we have to establish that even to this day, it's like the music scenes are very much still centralized in like a New York and a Los Angeles. And so, and they're historically have not been folks on the ground, like kind of checking to see like, oh, like what's going on, you know, in these Southern cities or whatever. They're not really necessarily checking out for that, especially um, during these earlier days in like hip hop, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's the significance of these labels too, which is that, you know, they're like basically having to like, you know, fend for themselves on that front. So even when a Suave House, like you say, it's interesting that, you know, like this label ends up signing a whole bunch of people from like Memphis and things like that. But maybe that was the only resource that they really had at that particular mm. time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's mainly what I think about. And it also makes you wonder too, like, um, I remember listening to um, Pay Dues, about the MJG song, Pay Dues. And they were talking about like how hard it is out here on the business aspect of it. Like a lot of times we think about, we idealize, or at least at that time, idealize this idea of being signed. It's just like MJG was talking about like the difficulties of being signed, like how that impacted, not only financially impacted him, but also impacted his his art, his artwork, you know what I'm saying, his work. And look, I was 17 when I signed my first contract and about 18 and a half when I signed my worst contract. We heard from that. And to this day, they still distribute our first taste before coming out hard. Now can you feel it? Be humble and patient with whatever you should choose. Cause to get to where I am right now, I done paid my dues. It's a skin and line between wrong and right. Trapped in the trap of the morning. But we coming to Atlanta. Atlanta has such a very fascinating history with record labels and I want to go back to when we were talking about the significance of funk music because that suggested that Atlanta been had a popping off music scene like music industry scene Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking specifically about you know Bunny Jackson Ransom and how she got the SOS band signed to Clarence Avon's label Taboo Records Uh uh-huh right Um, and Avon's from North Carolina but Taboo was in LA but Mm -hmm. they were recording the artists were some of the artists were recording here in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and it makes me think about that um, sonic migration. Like you know, we're not here, but the southern influence still travels, and the music is what helps it travel, which is not a new thing. Like it's been, you know, what I'm saying, been going on. 
when LaFace gets on the scene in the early 1990s, they have a particular type of sound in mind. Mm-hmm. It needs to be polished. It needs to be pristine, sanitary, even. You need to be <laughs> able to sell it to, you know, the linen, the white linen crowd. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the ones who will wear the white linen and the sandals and, you know, step. Sophisticated. <laughs> We're talking about sophistication here. Yeah. So, like, when they sign Organized Noise and when they sign Outcast and sign Goody Mob, that's like, oh, okay. Um, but, you know, we usually have those conversations, but you can't have a conversation about the, you know, about LaFace and those expectations of, of like, performative blackness, Southern middle class, upper class blackness, mm-hmm. without talking about Jermaine Dupri and So So Deaf. Right, right, of course. Right? I mean, like, you know, some folks would automatically go to So So Deaf to think about Atlanta record labels before a LaFace mm-hmm. when thinking about hip hop. Um, and I just remember when I would drive up to Atlanta with my grandparents, I remember the So So Deaf sign welcoming me to Atlanta, where the Delta sign is now on 75 coming up, like the aquarium sign and the Delta sign. That was a dude with a big ass afro that said, So So Deaf welcomes you to Atlanta. Atlanta. We've talked about like Jermaine Dupri's contributions to Atlanta's music scene, but we haven't really talked about his role as a, a record, like a record label CEO or whatever. You have sure. any thoughts on that? I like the fact that you brought up Bunny Jackson Ramson, first of all, because it was right around that time where Atlanta verse got posited as a potential Motown of the South. Like mm. we when we talk about, you know, Atlanta being the new Motown of the South, we have to understand this idea preceded hip hop for sure. So I'm glad you bring up the past on both sides of that coin, like when it comes to a LaFace, but then also a So So Deaf, it's like they're further exploring like the potential that could come with that. Especially like with a Jermaine Dupri, I feel like he's sort of really hell bent on being like Atlanta's own like Barry Gordy. Mm. And so I feel like that's why as a record label CEO, he became extremely pop minded. Um, while also sort of keeping his past in Atlanta in mind. You know, this kid who was raised on, like, talent shows and, like, seeing his dad sort of navigate the industry naturally finds a crisscross and is able to, you know, bring them up to the point where they're, like, opening for a Michael Jackson. Formalities of this and that Is that crisscross ain't coming off wet If all y'all suckers that don't know Check it out Some of them try to run, but they can't run like this about crisscross is they weren't immediately identified as being from Atlanta even though they were scouted even though they were yeah you know even though they're from here and I think that's one of the things that's really you know dope about a Jermaine Dupree is that he's been able to navigate these waves of music that have come out of Atlanta using the label you know what I'm saying right right. so it's like you know you have the so so deaf based all-stars Oh, right. Which is in competition, not competition, in conversation <laughs> with like the bass music that's coming out of Miami. Uh huh. So it's like I'm putting my own stamp on it. Right. You know what I'm saying? And then, you know, he also is known for Welcome to Atlanta. Welcome to Atlanta where the play is played and we ride on them things like every day. Big beats hit streets, see gangsters roaming and parties don't stop till eight in the morning. Welcome to Atlanta where the play is played and we ride on them things like every day. Big Beach, hit street, see gangsters roaming uh-huh. And parties don't stop yeah. till 8 uh-huh. in the morning Now the party don't start till I walk in And I usually don't leave until the thing is But uh-huh. in the meantime, in between time You 
work your thing, I work mine. I've been putting it down here since 83. Since the Lake Show MD rivalry. When frozen paradise was the Where the players play. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Which is like an extension of that skit from Outcast Southern Playalistic, which is also called Welcome to Atlanta. Uh-huh. Where it was just like a brief overview of this is what the city of Atlanta looks like. And then here comes Jermaine Dupree a couple years later, like, no, for real, let me really break this down for you what Atlanta means, what Atlanta does. And then he ushers in the snap era. With them franchise boys, mm-hmm. like he's, it's like he he keeps his his hand on the pulse. We have to talk about Uncle Luke and Luke Records. What is Uncle Luke up to? I mean, that is the reason that we got the censorship um, and parody lawsuit. Mm-hmm. that we talked about in the protest episode. Ah. It was, I mean, like, he had the artist, he had Two Live Crew, was signed to Luke Records. I was mm-hmm. just, like, re rewatching, and I'm just like, wow. Like, you have this idea of raunchy dance, uh, just trying to make, just trying to make my own little space, you know what I'm saying? Like, party music, raunchy-ass party music, mm-hmm. that... Not only did he make room for other Southern artists, but also that made room for a slip and slide to kind of carry on that tradition. So I just want to make sure I connected those dots so that Miami people don't come after me. Slip and Slide was founded in 94 by a man named Ted Lucas. And of course, you know Slip and Slide for giving us the best of what Florida has to offer. Trick Daddy. Trina. Rick Ross. Of course. But then also even some folks who weren't based in Florida, like Jagged Edge. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. The Thug and B group, who's also associated with a Jermaine Dupree. Look, Jagged Edge has made they they journeys (laughs) through the South. It makes me think about like the Chitlin Circuit. Oh yeah, you know what I'm saying? How like, so? So I mean, like, cause like they've made like they've made pit stops at, at some of these like really major labels, whatever. Cause like you know they're the kings of Thug and B. Like uh-huh. nobody fucks with Jagged Edge. Oh no, no for real. You they're ask not, these like, people, yeah. You yeah, don't like fuck you, with them. like I've read stories. They're like, no, 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 we don't. We don't fuck with them like that. Nope. <laughs> but I mean, like, not like fuck with them. Like, don't listen to them. Like, we don't. We don't want no problems. Type. Right. Type stuff. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, like, even with thinking about the Chitlin circuit, that was very prominent in early 19th century, 20th century, even like now. You know what I'm saying? And basically, the Chitlin circuit is you weren't on that uh, worn path. You were on the off the beaten path, and you were performing for you know marginalized people. You know what I mean? And sometimes your uh, your payment was room and board, something to eat maybe something really minimal or literally mm-hmm. chitlins mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. nasty asses no I don't do no chitlins I don't, I don't no don't invite me don't invite me if you have chitlins of course it predates hip hop but the I guess the main thing with how the chitlin circuit kind of plays out in hip hop it allows these folks to sort of cultivate an organic fan base yes. um, and you know connect with all these different regions in the south but just in a way that gets them also like if they're not being paid by room and board it was just like straight up cash is the Mm -hmm. thing we have to make that distinction because 
like with the Chitlin circuit, it's very independent. It's outside of the major label system. Mm -hmm. um, so because so that's what folks talk about when they say there's like the Chitlin circuit and then there's like the hard ticket sales. The hard right. ticket sales are like these bona fide like music venues where you got to go to Ticketmaster to get this shit. But like with the Chitlin circuit, it's easier to book and the artists get paid right away. Um, it just may be outside of the view from a Def Jam, a Universal, and so on and so forth. I mean, like a lot of the Southern record labels could be considered the Chitlin Circuit of Hip Hop. Like mm. a lot of the, a lot of the artists who were signed there, a lot of the other independent labels who are out there, but we probably aren't privy to because we're not in that local, like that local flavor, like that local region, yeah. are probably doing the exact same things that you're talking about. Like right. if you're here, you're you're here because you fuck with us. One of the things that was coming to my mind, Chris, is, as we were having this conversation, is the distinction between like the labels, like label mates. And like collectives. Oh, how so? You know what I'm saying? So yeah, like okay. the Dungeon Family, for example. Okay, yeah. Is a collective. Uh -huh. It's not necessarily a label. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like when you think mm -hmm. about Slip and Slide, like Trick Daddy and them were like Slip and Slide, Slip and Slide. It almost made them like a collective mm -hmm. in addition to them being part of the label. No Limit, Cash Money. Like Cash Money had the Hot Boys, which ultimately branched off, like you said, into Young Money and they became like the Young Money click. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So do you have any thoughts on the significance of like, or if there are distinctions between when folks consider themselves a collective based or versus them being label mates? I think it all really kind of comes down to business. Um, but I think like the collective um, really precedes like the label in the sense that it sort of establishes like the camaraderie in the community. Like I think of like DJ Screw with a screwed up click. You know, those were folks that were literally just kind of going over to his house after they heard that, you know, he was doing these beats. And then before you know it, like the folks who kept coming over and who kept, you know, getting all these local hits based on all the tapes that they record together, like they became the screwed up click. I'm the big fish of the ghetto. What it do? Earned a lot of stripes and soldier medals. What it do? From pushing green peas and flower petals. What it do? You know the big fish is never gonna settle. What it do? Pushing in those strikes and cracks. What it do? Big player make paper stacks. What it do? When you own that X and Y sweets. What it do? It just make you wanna play in girlies pink. What it do? I'ma come down banging screw. What it do? Don't make me put an eight in the mountain. Um, I also think of like the J team by King Angra J. Like, you know, they weren't a label per se either, but they were just a group of tastemakers that sort of, you know, formed a collective. But it's through that tastemaking abilities that they're able to have a label because, like, you have to be able to have taste before you can do business. You can't talk about independent hustle in Atlanta without big own. Oh my God. Like that, that hustle that he had. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And especially like the folks that he matured so to speak matured i like you know that I mean? so uh -huh. like baby d and hitman sammy sam and i'm oh, like yeah. you know we clearly we talked about them on the crunk episode you know what i mean but it's it's again like that that hustle seems to be like it allows me to maintain the vision of how i see myself as an artist mm -hmm. like that independent like vision in ways that that oomp and gucci Mane kind of continue this idea this is what we want to see oh, ourselves yeah. as artists this is how we see the world this is how we see atlanta yeah let us let us tell you you know what I'm saying? And what Big that Goop, looks like. Yeah, and Big Goop is really uh, significant because 
at around the same time that uh, LaFace is really putting Atlanta on the map, at the same time that Soso Duff is really putting Atlanta on the map, you have Big Oon with, with Hitman Sammy Sam, which I feel like is like a predecessor to a Gucci Mane. Mm. Like, before Gucci Mane was championing Zone 6, like, Hitman Sammy Sam was telling you to look out for these zones, like, period. Mm -hmm. Like, listen, this is how we regard the city, by police zones. And so, like, um, it's through something like a bingo, which, by the way, for those who haven't been to Atlanta, like, they had, like, literal storefronts where they were selling their mixes where you could get a DJ jelly mix and stuff. You didn't have to go through a Best Buy, you know, in order to get a big oop mix. But, like... It's, it's the hustle. It's like, right. you know, you also be in somebody's trunk. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, you know, you get one CD for five, two CDs for like 10. Like, you can't add math and shit. Like, it's okay, it's just two CDs for $5 a piece. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> what's, the, what's the discount? Um, but I mean, like, you know, that that entrepreneurial hustle, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, there was a means to an end. So it's like, if you're not going to play my shit, then we're still going to get it out there. Which oh, is, yeah. Which is something that the South is very known for. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a reason that folks call their stuff Trump music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what yeah, I'm saying? Right. Like, where'd it come from? Trump. Right. But also, like, I mean, it knocks, but it's also like, this is how I got the, the got that shit out to you. Like, I stopped you at the club. Everybody was moving out. Let me give you these, let me give you these tapes right here, partner. You right. Know what I'm and that was a testament to how there were already levels to this shit, right? Because very even though, so. like, you know, hip hop radio is starting to um, become increasingly, like, popular, there was still, like, some gatekeeping involved. And so that's how you get, like, some of these independent labels, like, with their independent hustles and the trunk music, which it, because, Radio wasn't a channel that was accessible to them. Right. So they were like, we're going to figure out something else. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, ultimately, I guess the last question would be, where do we go from here? You know what I'm saying? Like, how do we how do we merge or, co or reconcile even, like, these kind of, like, differing perspectives of how artists should approach the industry, their artistry, and legacy, ultimately? Because of the independent hip-hop success stories that this that the southern rap landscape has seen there's always going to be a sense of credibility of stuff that kind of like comes out of here i feel like the sound of music at this particular point is becoming um increasingly global i'm hearing these global influences sort of converging yes, um in a way that like a black pink can exist mm -hmm. um or to where like a bad bunny can exist, for example. Um, I, you know, there could have easily been a future where, you know, off the heels of Old Town Road, Lil Nas X could have signed to a label over in Amsterdam or China or who even knows. True. On the other hand, I think with the South, in particular with Southern hip hop, I'm not 100% sure that the archetype of Master P is necessarily going to die because I feel like. It's that image is still very pervasive today. Mm. This idea that once we establish a label, we're gonna build our community up. Like we're gonna take care of family, we're gonna take care of home first. And I think because of past independent hip hop success stories, I think labels coming out of the South are always gonna have that sense of credibility. listening to Bottom of the Map, brought to you by WABE and PRX. 
If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. It'll help more people find this show. Follow Bottom of the Map on your social media platforms at BOTMPod. Again, that's BOTMPod. Bottom of the Map is hosted by Christina Lee and Dr. Regina Bradley. Produced by Floyd Hall. That's me. Edited by Stephen Key. Executive producers, Jan Berry and John Hawes. Ayanna Taylor is our project manager. Our theme music is produced by Smith and Cash. Special thanks to Mike Johns and Lois O.G. Reitzes. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Follow, subscribe, connect. Holla. From the steps of the Woodruff Library in the AUC, I love you, Roy.